0: This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham, and you're listening to The Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 32, Grow Post. Phew! After The Coming of Shadows last time, uh, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect or what I even wanted in a follow-up episode the first time through, and even this time since I was kind of fuzzy on the details uh, of what came next. How about you guys? Do you remember the first time you watched it or even what you were feeling after watching The Coming of Shadows, this big momentous episode, and then do you have desires or expectations coming off that one? And of course, in a moment, we'll talk about whether we lived up to it, but for now... I I, I never have expectations. Come on. I'm a science fiction Hmm. fan. What
1: do science fiction fans have expectations and unreasonable (laughs) desires?
2: No, uh, never.
1: uh, Mm -hmm. I remember remember after watching The Coming of Shadows the first time uh, saying that there's no way anything could possibly live up to this. And I was right. Um, But... I don't know. This 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 was definitely a change of pace from uh, from that, and my opinion of it was different this time around than back in the day. But I'm sure we'll get into that.
0: Ooh, how about you, Shannon?
2: I think what stuck in my mind first time around was getting to meet Stephen's father, and you know, yet again, we have yet another character with a, a difficult parent to deal with. But um, other than that, it didn't make like a major impression on me. I don't think I was paying a great deal of attention at the time as far as the setup or the backstory, why the station was suddenly flooded with all of these uh, extra soldiers. Um, And like Chip, this time I was paying more attention. So I I have more opinions now uh, than I did before.
0: Okay. Well... I guess if you are jumping in with Gropos for some reason, uh, let's start with what you need to know about Babylon 5. It is a space station in neutral territory, it is a port of call for aliens of many types, and was built to be a symbol of, and place to foster, peace. Unfortunately, two of the major races in the galaxy, the Narn and the Centauri, have recently declared war upon each other, reigniting a conflict that goes back many years as the Centauri had occupied and enslaved Narn for about a hundred years. Babylon 5 was built by and is administered by Earth, or more specifically, Earth Force, the Earth's military outfit. The chief medical officer is Dr. Stephen Franklin, a passionate physician who is wholly dedicated to healing the sick, no matter what race they may happen to be. Security chief Garibaldi is a recovering alcoholic who has not had a lot of luck with the ladies. Oh, and there's a pilot named Lieutenant Warren Keffer who lives there, too. And that pretty much brings us up to Gropos, which is a military slang term for ground pounders or infantry troops. In this case, it refers to Earth Force space marines who fight hard and have a short life expectancy. No fewer than 25,000 of these troops appear at Babylon 5 with no advanced warning, as they are on their way to launch a an almost surprise attack on a compound called Matok. The station's command staff has to scramble to find bunks for all of these soldiers, not to mention keep the peace while the rowdy soldiers flood the Zokolo and other public areas. The general in charge of the troops is none other than Dr. Franklin's father. They have a rocky father-son relationship, and it shows. Luckily, they manage to get past that before the fleet leaves for Matak, a target that Captain Sheridan assures the general will be much harder to take than they had been told. Though happily for Stephen, his father makes it through the conflict alive a soldier named Dodger, comes on to Garibaldi, but he blows it at the last minute by trying to make more of the assignation than she meant. Lieutenant Keffer is at first unhappy to be sharing his quarters with a couple of hard-drinking, smoking Gropos, but he bonds with them before they leave. Tragically, but not unexpectedly, they are all killed in action while taking the Matak facility. And that is Gropos. So... Um, for my part, I, I wasn't really sure what to expect or or what I wanted out of an episode after something like The Coming of Shadows. It's 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 kind of a big deal. And anytime you have a big deal episode, it, it's hard to follow it up unless you're going to do you know an arc of big deal episodes. It's hard to follow it up. And sometimes when you jump right back into light, fluffy, silly territory, it really rubs me the wrong way, as, as we've seen in some of the previous ones. For my part, I thought that that Gropos was it was a decent balancing act because it wasn't one of the throwaway silly episodes. It wasn't a sitcom; we weren't meant to be laughing at things. There was some some serious meat here. So while the story itself isn't quite as consequential as you know something big like uh, like the coming of shadows, I felt like it did an okay job of of easing us off. And it did seem this time watching it, I was paying kind of more attention to. The arc of, of what had happened previously, I felt like it actually fit in a little bit more momentously than I had remembered, uh, with all the the wartime stuff and the Narn and Centauri conflict. So, um, it sounds like you guys might have had a little bit of the same same sort of thoughts. Chip, what are your your overall thoughts about the episode?
1: I'll agree with you there. Um, one of the things that Gropos succeeds at is it sort of almost immediately shows the implications of the the coming of Shadows as far as the Narn Centauri War is going around. The Earth Alliance is almost immediately, as Sheridan complains, saber rattling a bit. Uh, Franklin says, you know, the galaxy is about to become a lot more militarized and Earth's going to have to follow along with it to ostensibly to protect itself. And then towards the end of the episode, uh, when Sheridan's trying to talk General Franklin out of this attack, Franklin points out that, you know, this place is strategic to the Narn and the Centauri. At some point, the Earth Alliance is going to have to choose sides. So even though in terms of the raw plot of the episode, it is far less consequential than The Coming of Shadows. It actually reinforces how big a deal the previous episode was, you know. That there are immediate consequences, and you can see further consequences coming down the road. So, yeah, it's no sitcom. It's more of a slice-of-life kind of episode, but life changed as of The Coming of Shadows.
0: Definitely. Shannon, how about you? Pretty much echoing
2: the same kind of thing that uh, you all have said, that uh, as I said, paying attention this time to the more military side of the story. Uh, it's a perfect reaction to what has happened before, uh, that the Earth has to do something to solidify its presence uh, in this part of the galaxy where war has broken out, where they you know bring the latest technology to upgrade B5 and befit it so that it can defend itself better than before. Uh, all of this fits in very well. Without trying to match what we got in the coming of shadows, um, again, I, you know, I think it was a very wise choice, not a silly episode, although there are a few silly moments here and there to enjoy, but a good balance of what would happen next if the in a real conflict, what would Earth politics want to do, balanced with um, some neat character study and um, getting uh, to know a little bit more about Doctor Franklin, meeting his father and uh, the opportunities that that opens up.
1: Yeah. I said that this was not as consequential an episode as The Coming of Shadows. It's also a far less even episode. In fact, there's some stuff in this episode that just simply doesn't work either from a writing or a directing standpoint.
0: Yeah, I agree. And actually, um, I have some comments from Stephen to that effect that, that we will get to in a little bit. But before we jump ahead, quite so far, uh, I just want to point out that I, I agree with the, one of the things that you said, Chip, is, is seeing um, immediate consequences for what happened in the previous episode. And that is just one of those things that we always keep coming back to talking about Babylon 5, that everything that happens in this show, well, almost everything that happens in this show has consequences. We we see what happens as a result of the actions that are taken. And that is that is one of the reasons why I think Gropos has has jumped up a little bit in my estimation. Um. This time compared to the first time I watched it. And then, Shannon, you mentioned that we do get some nice character moments in this. So, you know me, I want to start by diving in with the character moments. You know, this is another one where I don't know which is the A plot and which is the B plot. So let's just start with, with the Garibaldi and Dodger plot. Uh, we haven't had a, a Garibaldi episode for a while. Uh, and now we have this one. Seeing him, gosh, it's sort of just
1: self <laughs> so He bit. is a mess, isn't he?
0: Oh my goodness. I was just kind of cringing and watching from behind my fingers during that whole scene that Dodger was was trying to come on to him. Um how did how did you guys react to watching that?
2: Kind of the same way. Not not exactly cringing, but sort of feeling for for Garibaldi and in the fact that you know, he's I mean it's it's almost like a it's a role reversal well it is it's a role reversal where you know he's the one who is thinking you know I like this person this could turn into something I'm not going to mess this one up I'm going to you know call put on the brakes and um and and talk this out first and Dodger you know is the one who is like I just wanted, you know, a one-night stand. I wanted to enjoy myself for one night because who knows what happens tomorrow. Um, it, it, I find it kind of clever that that, that, that the traditional gender roles of, of a typical relationship and, and stereotypes are reversed. Um, I also really appreciated Dodger, the character. A whole lot. Uh, the fact that she's the one who jumps in to rescue Delenn when um, when the other three start threatening her. Uh, the fact that dear God, she can kick butt uh, and you know, takes down you know, three or four of these guys before things uh, calm down. So I really liked the character. Generally, I liked how the actress actress portrayed her, and that just made me feel all the more, you know, for Garibaldi, uh, that you know that that again that you know he 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 was trying to be good about it and and it just pretty much blew it.
1: You know, I felt worse for Dodger than I did for Garibaldi, mm-hmm. and, and because. Dodger laid her cards on the table pretty much, and Garibaldi's the one who sort of leaps way beyond what she's offering, and he's, at, at, at you know, he's he's straight to he's straight to picket fences, and um, you know, <laughs> you know, when a, a, a little self disclosure here uh, in social situations, it, whether in college or at conventions and, or anything like that, I am the last person in the world to figure out when some of my friends might be looking to hook up. You know, I I I <laughs> I I have no clue. I have I have no clue. I was given a I was given a fraternity nickname of Ozone for this very reason.
0: <laughs> oh dear. <laughs>
1: Um, so that this is this is just a this is just a blind spot maybe Garibaldi has a sort of a similar blind spot in that you know he's as far as we know he's had fairly serious relationships in the past uh, lease was a serious relationship uh, up until the point where um, he decided that uh, following uh, Sinclair on a bit of a crusade was uh, the the th- something that he needed to do so, yeah, my sympathies pretty much lied with Dodger in that in, in that that uh, Garibaldi was sort of reflexively asking more than he kind of had a right to.
0: I think I was feeling awkward for both of them. Just I I get awkward when I see awkward situations on TV, which is why I have trouble watching you know some TV shows like The Office or something like that because that kind of thing just kind of makes me tightens my spine mm-hmm. in, in an uncomfortable way. So I think I was just mostly uncomfortable with that. As far as the feeling for one character or the other, I think I did feel for both of them because poor Dodger. I thought her performance, this is this is one of our more rare instances of a really well cast uh, guest actor. As she's sitting there and Garibaldi's talking, her facial expressions are just priceless. Like she is mm-hmm. not... This is not going the way she wanted it to, and she's recognizing that she's going to be making her exit pretty soon, and I think she plays that out well. Whereas for Garibaldi, I really quite like sort of how this deepens him as a character a little bit because he's kind of been the guy with a quip and you know we've, we've mm-hmm. seen a little bit here and there um, you know him talking about his pops and, and and stuff to kind of show that he's got a, a little bit more to him and in this case I find it fascinating that he's the kind of guy who's just sort of the, uh, a serial monogamist I think because quite often you expect the, the, the quippy sort of guys who are, are hitting on the ladies like you know he's, he's always flirting with Talia I just expect him to be the one night stand kind of guy and he absolutely is not. It doesn't even cross his mind that that's that that's a, a thing that he can do here. He he thinks he's screwing something up by jumping into bed so fast, and I I find that kind of adorable. And mm-hmm. yeah. It, yeah, it improves my view of Garibaldi a bit. I think.
1: Yeah, and you notice that he's not uh, closing the door on either Dodger or Italia. He's not sure which mm-hmm. way to go, so he wants to slow down. Yeah. Uh, the mm-hmm. first time I saw this, I just blithely assumed that. Uh, He was like, he was into Talia and he didn't want to screw the thing with Talia up. And no, it's actually more nuanced than that. He's actually just trying to be careful. And I also caught this time, but didn't catch the last time, you know, that part of the calculus here is, you know, he got shot in the back by somebody he should have trusted, Mm -hmm. you know. He is generally more, suspicious isn't the right word, careful is the right word at this point.
0: I think he's scarred, <laughs> you know, literally and figuratively mm-hmm. um, by that. And I also uh, – the, the little thing that I noticed this time was him saying uh, about Talia, we have to assume, that he – you know, there's a woman who – the kind who he just doesn't – normally doesn't have a chance with. So there's – part of the calculus is the, the thought that he really likes Talia very much, but he just – he doesn't think that he's worthy of her, which I – I think is an interesting little piece of his, his personality as well. So I, we get an awful lot in that one scene. Um, and while, you mm-hmm. know, there are definitely, I think, some shortcomings in the direction and stuff elsewhere, I think that scene was kind of a tour de force. It, it worked really well. Even, you know, Jerry Doyle isn't always the greatest with the the heavier stuff, but I feel like he pulled this off better than he has in some, that we, some that we've we seen so far. So I,
1: I agree. I thumbs up. I agree. And there's also something about class here that I think dovetails into the rest of the episode. I think one of the things that Garibaldi himself sees himself as a ground pounder at heart. You know, he used that line himself when he was talking with uh, Amos uh, in The Long Dark. And and I think that that's part of the reason why he sees himself as possibly not having a shot with Talia, who is very elegant, you know maybe not a, she's a businesswoman uh, she's not quite aristocratic but she's sort of getting up there and the rest of this episode you've got a you've got a class conflict between the ground pounders and the fly boys you know not even just the officers but uh, although keffer is an officer you know the the different culture of the rough and tumble marines and the fly boys. Babylon Five is a fairly class conscious T V show to begin with. And this sort of brings it out. Also, I like that we get a uh, reference to we get a reference to the Dockers Guild and how the Connolly And Connolly. We Ms. get a Connelly. reference to Connolly. Um, yep, and all the how way back to buying necessary. No. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I do like that through line as well.
2: Yeah. I think we also see that that class structure a bit with the deals as uh, General Franklin is laying out his plans to Captain Sheridan because, you know, General Franklin has been a soldier for a lot longer and he thinks he knows exactly what he's going into, although he is willing to get help from Sheridan, who has actually been to this place. But he doesn't really listen to Sheridan the way he ought to. I mean, he listens enough to. I guess, to, you know, to alter his plans for better success. But Sheridan's advice is, frankly, get out of here. And General Franklin is like, you're a diplomat now. You're not you're not a soldier. You're not thinking like a soldier. It's like (laughs) the different levels of experience that they essentially never wind up really talking to each other. They talk at each other.
0: You know, I have to disagree with that, because I think that that's how the characterization was built at the beginning. Um, and I definitely expected that to be the the dynamic all the way through. But I feel like like General Franklin is such a good soldier that by the end of his uh, interactions with, with Sheridan, that he has really taken on board everything Sheridan said. And he does make it clear that he doesn't have the, the power to, to turn around and, and say no. That even if he were to say, we shouldn't do this, it's not a good idea, it wouldn't matter. Because he gives pretty excellent reasons about the the Narn and Centauri War and how they they need to go in in there. So I got the impression that it wouldn't make a difference if he... Recognized that this is a dumb idea, that he would still be forced to do it anyway. So he just wanted to take all of the information he could get from from Sheridan and use it to the best of his ability to get as many people out of there as he could alive. And and I got that very much from the va- the last scene before he left for Matok talking to, doc- to uh, talking to Sheridan and saying th- the way that he said it. You know, Paul Winfield is a really good actor, and the way that he said, mm-hmm. you know, I hope I hope you're wrong about Matok, made me think that he didn't actually believe that was the case, and he was just gonna to do his damnedest and, and get in there and try to get out as much as he could. So I, th- I thought that he came around uh, both on both fronts.
1: Yeah. He does also listen to uh, Sheridan on the interpersonal stuff uh, about the relationship between uh, the general and his son. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of this is just a normal rank discrepancy um, that, uh, you know, he's a flag officer. And even though Sheridan's a captain, he's not one of the big chair people, and uh, admirals and generals just aren't necessarily going to listen all that warmly to uh, the folks underneath if it's counter to the mission that they've got. Um, but mm-hmm. but yeah, he did. Uh, that that wasn't that was an interesting turn. I wasn't sure that I bought it when. Sheridan sort of goes into philosophical, uh, <laughs> semi-sentimental um, meditations on the relationships between fathers and sons. If I were Sheridan in that position, as uh, sort of forbidding as uh, General Franklin has been, I'm not sure that I would have gone there. But uh, Franklin did listen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what, yeah. let's let's jump into that subplot and talk about the the relationship well, between what- the Franklins
2: yeah one second before we do that i think um part of the reason that yes i see general franklin you know shifting developing taking things into account but it's still hard to get over um that that very last scene where um pretty much every single soldier that we've been introduced to is lying dead on that battlefield it's really hard to shake um the notion that you know, if if Sheridan had pushed harder, if, um, you know, if, if he'd been able to convince Franklin to at least turn back to his superiors and say, look, we need to rethink this, that some of this might have been avoided. I've, I've for whatever reason, this time watching the episode, that scene hit really hard compared to previous viewings.
1: You know, I, I get I get what you're saying, Shannon, but uh, thinking about General Franklin as a general. I think he fully expected most of those soldiers to die regardless.
0: My thought on that was... I wonder if after watching The Coming of Shadows and seeing that awful scene where we have Jakar and Londo talking to each other, but each knowing different things about what's happening and just how if, if they would have made the the other choice, it would have been so much less painful and easier. I wonder if if this sort of sense of inevitability is kind of settling in on me at this point, where I, just, I, I feel like things have started rolling so fast downhill that awful things are just going to start happening and there's nothing I can do about them as a viewer, so... So maybe I, I gave the General Franklin a little bit more of a pass because I just felt like he was he, he has set himself on this path and that's where it's going. And, and yes, it was very painful to see that final scene. But I, I think even without having had seen this episode before, I think I would have seen that that's the direction that this episode was going because it was kind of pointed that way. So I, I think the sense of inevitability um, softened it a little bit for me because I could just tell that the avalanche has
2: begun. It is too late for the pebbles to vote. Yeah, and I think that's one of the sort of themes of this particular episode um, that, you know, I'll I'll go into it a bit more in spoiler space. But um, I agree with generally what you're saying.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so let's turn to uh – to the two Franklins. Um, and, and before we, we dive deep into that, I just want to point out that it's uh, General Richard Franklin. Richard Franklin is the name of the Doctor Who actor who played uh, Mike Yates in the John Purwey era. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but it was certainly something that jumped out at Stephen and me as we were watching. Well, it's about time. time
1: we had another Doctor Who crossover moment in this podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Even if it's just tenuous, uh, I'm grasping at that straw and holding on tight. Um, so yes, we have General Richard Franklin and Dr. Stephen Franklin, who have that sort of rocky father-son relationship, which really is not unusual in television. It's, it's you know, the the young man going off on his own and, and believing different things than his hidebound father. And, and it's kind of an old story. How do, how do you guys think that they did in this particular version of it, playing it out with these two actors?
1: Well, this is where I confess why I wasn't looking forward to Gropo's. I saw Gropo's maybe once and then uh, never came really came back to it and saw online that some of the regular actors were not at all impressed with wait a minute, it's Paul, that's not Paul Terrell, it's Paul Winfield. Sorry about that. Yes. Sorry about that. Captain Terrell, the character from Star Trek. Um, Anyway, Mm -hmm. not all of the regular cast were all that impressed with Winfield. Uh, I saw reports that they felt like he came to the set unprepared, that he had to use cue cards for a fair bit. I don't Mm -hmm. recall, uh, I I don't recall how serious that was. Uh, It's been a long time since I've read those things, but I was not expecting him to do as good a job in the role as it turns out that he did. Uh, You know, um, I think for the most part, he did turn in a strong performance. And I thought that he and uh, Richard Biggs had really good, can we call it anti-chemistry?
2: I like that. We can call it father-son chemistry. They, they did very, very well portraying that dynamic. I mean, they were able to establish it within five seconds of being in the same room. And boom, there it is. And we know exactly where both of them stand. And from there, it is them sort of fighting at cross purposes with each other, trying to, um, you know, accept what the other is and not succeeding and all of those things that they managed to pack in um, that I think made a, a really good uh, plot thread. Uh, all the way through the episode.
1: One of the things I really like about their relationship is the way General Franklin, he doesn't care for his son's choices, many of them. He also doesn't care for it when his son doesn't back up those choices, you know. So, you know, he he's on the one hand, he's sort of got him going and coming. I don't like what you've done, and if you fail to stand up for what you've done because you're trying to be nice to me, I don't care for that either. You know, so it's a catch twenty-two, but it's perfectly believable, especially for a high-ranking general type. You know, the one thing you respect more than anything else is the courage of your convictions.
0: Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I wonder—I hadn't heard any of that about Paul Winfield showing up to, you know, to the set being somewhat unprepared. <laughs> I wonder if that maybe lent a little bit of something to. Um, to Richard Biggs' performance, because maybe he, as a, an actor, was a little bit annoyed with that and was able to to bring that into his characterization. Because I really got that frustration, the feeling of frustration from Stephen, pretty well, um, as as somebody looking up at his father and just shaking his head because he's just not understanding. And and I yeah, I, I bought it.
2: Chip- Yeah, Chip actually said at one point as we were watching um, one of the expressions that Richard Biggs gave in reaction to something that General Franklin said, and Chip just looks at me and goes, that's our son. That's our 13-year-old right there. Um, So yeah, very, very, very believable between the two of them. Two of the things that I really liked were, uh, one, bringing in the sort of social aspect in the larger picture that basically racism just keeps finding a new target where, you know, 200 years ago, it would have been fussing if Stephen was working for, you know, people in, a, in another continent, um, you know, uh, Hispanics or Asians or something or, or you know, a, a class of people that General Franklin didn't think was worth helping. And it just keeps evolving into the new other. And now it's aliens. General Franklin has spent his entire career fighting aliens Stephen has spent almost all of his career learning about them and exploring what's out there and embracing it that it continues you know in the new situation like this uh, i think was uh an interesting sort of sub theme to present in that story
0: especially since it's becoming from uh, coming from the uh the, the black actors on this show
2: right yeah that was that was telling i thought the other thing that uh, I really liked about this story was, you know, I mentioned earlier, fathers and children. We, we've seen this a bit before. And this time it gets to take a different path. Susan did not get a comprehensive chance to mend fences with her father. She takes the opportunity to push Franklin in that direction, just as Sheridan pushes the general, you know, don't don't leave it. Uh, talk to him. And this time. It's a little bit different. They leave. They've got a little more understanding of one another. They, they kind of know where the other is. They may not always agree still, but they know they love each other. And Stephen has the possibility going forward because his father is still alive that they can continue to branch out. So I like that. You know, it's the same theme of relationships, but the outcome is different.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the continuity that we, you know, we had something so, so early on in season one with with Susan and her father, and we didn't just forget about it and let it sit there. Like, this is a part of her character, and because there's something similar going on now, she's able to bring that up, just like a real person would bring up their actual memories and and try to help out a friend. And I really liked the scenes between Ivanova and Franklin. I liked that they just... They seemed very natural as two colleagues and friends coming together, one trying to sort of help the other one out in, in a way that felt very real to me.
1: Yeah, I love that bit when Susan's opening up about her past and Franklin latches onto it with enthusiasm, like – Oh, yeah, you totally get it. I get the same way. You know, he's really excited about that. And then, of course, they're interrupted by her link. And, you know, that moment, that was, that was a really well-written and directed uh, moment there, actually. Great relationship between those two characters in this episode.
0: While we're talking about characters, I guess we should probably turn to the the other character interaction, which was between Lieutenant Keffer and his cohorts. Uh, when he when he actually <laughs> appeared on the screen, and I'll edit uh, myself here a little bit here, I'm going to quote Steven. And he was like, holy S- that guy, like he had not <laughs> expected to see him appear on the screen at all, except in the opening credits where he inexplicably is, uh, according to Steven. Um, so so the fact that he played somewhat of a, a major role in this story was, was kind of amusing in and of itself. And he has to deal with... Uh, like you said chip some of that the class issues he's the 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 flyboy or whatever they kept calling him and uh and he's got a bunch of ground pounders around him and he's very unhappy about this at first but of course by the end this you know i felt like it was sort of the the schmoopiest of of all of the subplots even the <laughs> more than the father son thing that he manages to bond with these guys and maybe it's just because i will i will own my bias against Kefir. i'm just not a fan of that character or the the portrayal of him um but i I liked the uh, I liked the guy who was I can't remember the character's name, but who's always talking about his friend Buffer. Um, but that was mm-hmm. that was about all I got out of this one. What do you guys think? You know, I kind of liked it. It's I think it
1: is it's it, it's an in, uneven performance, but it is one of Robert Russler's best as Keffer, You know, okay. And, and you may you may say that that's not saying very much, but it's he has some really great moments in here. Uh, I love the line and the delivery when uh, he has the cigar smoke blown into his, into his face and he says, yeah, I've got a problem. Let me get a ladder and I'll talk to you about it face-to-face. And that <laughs> is just, okay. that. I love that line because it's it gives Keffer this moment of simultaneous bravado and realism. Like, uh, I am going to acknowledge that this is a problem and I am going to stand up for myself, but I'm also going to acknowledge right at the outset I'm in that, trouble. You, that I'm in serious trouble and you are going to wipe the floor with me. You know, it's, it's a great little moment. Um, I also love the moment when he um, gets the beer bottle smashed at the back of his head and goes down, you know, Im- immediately goes down at the end of the, uh, at, at the end of the fight, you know, wrestler turns in a fairly good job and yes, it's kind of schmoopy. I think it's more to do with the fact that his roommates are kind of stereotypes um they, they are stereotypical soldiers much more so than dodger was uh they inhabit types and they are supposed to get and 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 it's so clearly supposed to be this odd couple odd trio uh bonding over time and finding things in common and things like that so yes it's schmoopy but uh i enjoyed it and this is uh, this is uh one of the first times where i can genuinely say i kind of enjoyed keffer
2: yeah for me, um, yes, I, I mentioned um yeah, the different kinds of soldiers that were shown. Um for me, it wasn't necessarily stereotype as much as trying to show a bit of diversity. Um, Larry detello's trying to sort of shorthand the military experience. Uh, for everybody who does not have this experience. You've got the 30-year man, um, you know, who has managed to, you know, go on this long, who has seen it all. You've got the brand new, wet behind the ears, this is his first combat fella. Uh, You've got Dodger sort of falling somewhere in between, you know, just supremely confident and competent. And again, the fact that, you know, not only, you know, is she competent, but she's a woman who can you know take down a group of guys. You've got uh, the other guy, Kleist, uh, who is like the chip on his shoulder, always angry type. And Dottillo's sort of using all of these to sort of map out what what a military unit would be like, that they would have these different personalities and these different experiences. And overall, you know, yeah, maybe maybe Schmoopy a bit here and there, but um, I also enjoyed it overall. I enjoyed um, how well generally uh, the fighting happened. Uh, it looked very, very real, very, uh, very vicious when uh, they tore into it in different uh, areas. I appreciated that not only was Dodger kicking butt, there was a shot of another woman uh, taking down a couple of guys in the bar scene after Keffer goes down with the beer bottle. And it worked for me overall. Um, uh, even though I, it,
1: I cannot in any way defend nor condone the guy jumping and dangling from the light fixture.
0: okay i will give you that one and you know actually shannon you lay out some good points i i I guess i hadn't really thought about it as character shorthand in quite that way but but you're right and it and it does work and i don't i i want to make it clear that it i didn't I did enjoy that subplot. I don't want to say that I disliked it. It was just, it was my least favorite, I think of the three. And I I am going to lay that all on the doorstep of Keffer because, you know, I think even the performances of his roommates were actually not that bad. I have a thing in my note that, uh, that even the, you know, the wet behind the ears, new guy, he wasn't the strongest performance wise, but because he was acting against Keffer, I feel like that actually made him look a little better (laughs) because he was,
1: yeah. So, (laughs) well, I mean, we have found some, we have found somebody that you, enjoy even less than michael o'hare
0: oh absolutely yep (laughs) without a doubt (laughs) yeah Yeah, i'm actually kind
2: of amused i've actually pulled up um the babylon five wakia um just out of curiosity the the big 30-year dude his character name in the credits is pfc large i mean at least the other others have names uh, you know, no, no, like I mean, the, the, the new guy is the new guy is Yang, there's Dodger, there's Kleist. But yeah, uh the the, the big dude is PFC Large.
1: No, that's his nickname oh. that they that they gave him. I think Dodger was a nickname too, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. Um Yeah, they get, she gave her name as Elizabeth Elizabeth something.
1: Yeah. Anyway. Uh but yeah, uh, we'll talk about the direction when we get to the direction but uh i have i have things to say about the about those fights <laughs> and about this episode in general <laughs>
0: Well, let's we'll move to that in just a second because I also wanted to point out uh, to say that, yes, Shannon is right, that there were there was at least one other woman in that fight scene. And that was one of the things that I liked overall about this episode was that there were plenty of female soldier, soldiers marching along with the guys and there was never a thing made out of it. It was just, these are ladies, they are soldiers. And and I, I too appreciated the role reversal that we got with Dodger and Garibaldi. And I liked the implication that this wasn't, it, that by 2259, that's not a role reversal. It's just that people act how people act. And some people have this personality mm-hmm. and some people have yeah. that personality. And it doesn't make any difference, you know, what gender they happen to be. So I thought that was really cool. And I love that it is a role reversal based on what we expect to see. Certainly what we expected to see back when this first aired right. in the
1: 90s. So. Well, Even, even today, uh, the biggest critics of allowing women into combat roles in the military They claim that women are either too vulnerable to unspeakable wartime atrocities or they just can't handle the physical demands of the job. And Dodger destroys that argument by destroying Kleist and uh, and others, you know – She's a very the actress and the character very very mm-hmm. capable fighters you know brutal fighter uh, she's just look at awesome that kick yeah mm-hmm. uh, look at the way that uh, the direction goes when um, during the big brawl at the end when she's actually fighting the camera you know sort of sort of breaking mm-hmm, the fourth mm-hmm. wall in a certain way and that's you know uh, she is capable all of the all of the infantry women in this episode are capable so they they sell
0: that. Definitely. Well, let's let's move on to the direction now. Chip, you have opinions. I would like to hear those opinions.
1: Man. <laughs> My opinions are that this is a really uneven episode. In, in, in terms of, you know, we've been saying great things about the character stuff, but the mechanics of the script and the uh, direction are just so scattershot. It's uh, even e- the closing brawl itself is this mixture of really clever stuff and really stupid stuff, you know, um, and, and and they're just sort of mashed together, higgledy piggledy. The actor who's playing the drills, the the, the the sergeant. Oh my god! The only time I, I not even like the only time I believe that character, is at the very end, the absolute very end, when he's giving... When he Garib- lets his humor through. When he lets his he- humor through, when he's giving Garibaldi a glance after uh, <laughs> Dodger kissed the hell out of him um, in the line. You know, other than that, it's it's possibly my least favorite acting job of the series thus far. He's just awful. Wow. Um, I hate him.
2: Well, I'm not sure he was given the opportunity to be anything other than awful, but... You know, I agree that that particular character was, was – the, the way he twisted It was not shorthand. It was caricature.
1: The way he twists his mouth. Okay, soldiers, you magazine. It's just – no. I don't – I didn't buy him for a second. The attack on Matak, where we get the scenes with the newscaster and the supposed footage, this is an area where uh, CGI was just absolutely not up to the task uh we had a hint of that with the knucklehead feeder uh in season 1 but the assault on Matak just looked utterly captain power in the soldiers of the future uh and <laughs> just totally not and that was something that we should have had described for us rather than attempting to show larry detilio's a good writer um but I think you know it's it's a it's a Larry Dicello script, so of course, the uh fake curse word stroke is going to be used over and over again. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this is I, I think that this is a pretty messy episode. Uh, I think that it does the job um, and is uh better coming off of the coming of shadows than I expected it to be, but still, yeah, rant
0: over. <laughs> Shannon, what do you think?
2: I'm not as clever at picking out directional things as as other people are. So for the most part, I didn't notice unless it was like maybe there just wasn't as much fluidity as we've seen in, in other episodes as far as like shots and so forth. Um, even the fight scenes, um, where, uh, Dodger defends Delenn or in, in the bar, it, the the camera's pretty much just static. It's not like, you know, moving in any way to try and take in what's going on. So, you know, I guess, (laughs) I guess it did feel somewhat pedestrian, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't know enough to, to point out exactly why.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Stephen, actually, from the very beginning, that the first shot with the uh, the mock ups of of multiple lines of soldiers moving in and out and stuff. And he he Mm -hmm. Stephen kind of laughed at it. But he he said he he was impressed with the effort, because that was that was an ambitious thing to try. But um, there were other things in there, which, which also kind of made him laugh and maybe not the greatest way. For example, during the fight scene, somebody gets tossed into a fruit stand and Stephen's just shaking his head going, there's always a fruit stand, which is true. <laughs> so I mean, that may have been an on purpose kind of a nod to action movies. I don't know, but it was, it was, it was pretty funny. Um but he agreed very much that the end, the whole last section, learning about the outcome of Matak just felt really clunky to him. He, he's like, I was just sitting there thinking of some things they could have done differently to tell the story in a different way at the end there. He said he quite liked the episode up until that part. And I think it wasn't just the the CGI of the, the fight um, and That, I agree, was not great, but I was just sort of – I get bored with action scenes anyway, so I just kind of let that one wash over me. But I think he thought it the the reporter standing there sort of awkwardly in front of the the CG background and then also awkwardly interviewing the general, it just – it was a a weird way to – to finish it off and it, it could have been a little bit more elegant. And I that I think that comes both from writing and from direction. Yeah. I think
2: it sort of turns into an expo dump in in using the medium of the news because I think it might have packed more of a punch. Garibaldi and Keffer's reactions to the casualty list could have been enough. Agree. You know? That that could have been, you know, it right there. Let let Franklin learn that his dad's alive and okay, yeah, in some way, but but yeah, that yeah, that seemed like an easy way to do it. Yeah. And there, I, mean, there, I I think there were better ways.
1: I mean the the last the last shots of their bodies, that carries some weight. I liked that. Mm-hmm. Um yes. but you know, you could have gone with with Franklin getting the message that his dad's all right, hearing hearing the communique or having the having the ISN news anchor uh just sort of rip doing a rip and read story rather than trying to do that other stuff and then you show or just
2: Sheridan letting him know.
1: Yeah, Sheridan yeah. letting Garibaldi know Keffer getting uh getting a communique or something like that and then you cut to the the bodies on the ground and there you go.
0: Mm-hmm. That I think that's yeah, how it should have was- been done. I I agree. And I I I did like the the scene of the panning across the bodies. I mean, it came as kind of a shock the first time I saw this and even this even this time. um, But I felt like it really achieved the emotional gut punch that it was that it was trying to. and, And that worked for me. Mm hmm. So before we uh, before we jump into spoiler space, let's let's kind of circle back to, to where we started talking about the, uh, the the momentous import or not of this story in comparison with uh, with the previous one. And I think a big chunk of that comes from the fact that uh, the Narn and Centauri just declared war, and now suddenly we've got this this new sense of, of martialness, uh, overrunning the show. It's uh, you know. the Boom, here we've got a ton of soldiers, and Dylan and everybody are talking about, hmm, why are there so many soldiers here? It, it seems like we've made somewhat of a, a, what of a shift. And how did that strike you guys without going into spoilery stuff? Because we'll save that bit.
1: I think it's a big deal. And I think that, you know, Stephen was complaining about the absence of Dylan uh, last week, last podcast. Uh, and uh, Dylan doesn't have a whole lot to do in this episode, but. She fulfills a really important role in it uh, this time around because uh, she points to what appears to be the mission of B-5 as a builder of the peace, that mission sort of being undermined by the presence of so many troops. Obviously, she's going to feel that way in part because that these are a lot of Earth troops and, uh, you know, and ju- she probably had some misgivings just like the uh ground pounders who accosted her have had mis had misgivings although theirs were significantly more prejudiced b5 gets a whole bunch of new guns uh out outfitted and the um there are soldiers everywhere and general franklin's talking about earth needing to take sides in a war Uh, that's really ominous stuff
2: yeah um Lends itself to just last episode uh, when the Centauri Emperor asks Kosh, how is this going to end in fire right away? We are seeing an impact and a huge consequence um, of what has happened. Uh, And from here on out, the the feeling is it's only going to get worse.
1: Yeah, we have dialogue, I believe it's between Dolin and Garibaldi, about how uh, she doesn't expect that, uh, you know, they've got to keep trying, but at the moment, uh, Londo and Jakar have no interest in talking to each other. Um, And I think it's really telling that Londo and Jakar are not a part of this episode. Obviously, the episode doesn't have anything to do with them directly, but by taking them entirely off the uh, chessboard for this episode, you know... All of a sudden, we're living in the universe where the Narn and the Centauri are at war, and there's nothing that we can do about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely... it. I feel like we've turned a corner. Although we've said that a bunch of other times in a lot of other episodes, I feel like we've turned a corner, and then we get Londo's three lives coming, and everything is silly. Um, but... So I, I, I'm not confident that this is the direction that we're going to be pointed in every single episode, but I do get the feeling that this show has has you know we are we are rolling downhill. It is the. They're, we're picking up some steam and things are actually changing in, in in at least the background of every future episode. I feel like things are going to are gonna move. But yeah. that is that is me talking as somebody who doesn't really remember the coming episodes all that well, because I feel like I've been doing a better job at playing that role on this show than I expected <laughs> to. Because <laughs> every episode comes and I'm like, yeah, I, I, that title doesn't mean anything to me. I wonder what's going to happen. And I'm like, oh, my. This is exciting. It's, it's quite a, a journey of rediscovery, you guys. I appreciate it.
1: Well, you're actually helped in that by watching it with somebody who's never seen it before. Um, True. I, 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 will, uh, I, I do want to reinforce, though, that I thought that uh, D'Lynn's part in this is important, um, mm-hmm. and it illustrates how much more dangerous this world is because, um, you know, we had the Home Guard uh, in first season going after Shaw Mayan. Uh, this time, it's normal soldiers, and they encounter a Minbari who looks like a half-human, and it just gets really nasty really fast. And it's uh, Dodger's innate nobility that stops this from turning into a real nightmare. And that, that, that illustrates even more so than a few episodes ago when Deline was dealing with Minbari who didn't trust her. Uh, from their own perspective, you know, it really illustrates how precarious Dillon's position is right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Although the one thing that I kind of had a little bit of a problem with when it comes to Delenn in this episode is that, and I know that talking about going back and talking about the gathering is maybe not the smartest thing to do when it comes to continuity, but (laughs) uh, especially since, you know, even Delenn's makeup and everything was was quite a lot harsher and different, but we got to see her tossing people around bodily and physically then. And even after that, she was still a pretty strong character. So, I mean, I don't know if this is supposed to be some sort of a hint to us that she she doesn't have the the Mimbari super strength anymore, but she really does seem a lot more sort of meek since she made the change. And well, I
2: I, I can sort of Shannon, see that. I'm not sure how I feel. <laughs> well, I I could sort of see as Chip was saying, you know, among her own people, she is no longer in the position of security that she had before. If that's how she's feeling these days, and you've suddenly got these not just one but three or four fairly big dudes. Closing in on her, I, I think I'd be backing up, too. Um, I think okay. that's a little bit of, you know, an expression of her her own uncertainty about herself, um, that she can't stand – that she doesn't immediately stand up for herself as strongly as she ought to.
1: Yeah, remember that she – after she came out of the chrysalis and started dealing with Membari, she expected – that they were going to continue to treat her with the respect that an ambassador, and hey, by the way, she's also Satai, uh, that she was due. And she was very quickly disabused of that notion. And I don't think that she knew what to make of it. I think it is realistic for her not to be the strong Delenn that we saw in season one.
0: Okay. I, I appreciate that. I think she's got to find a way was... again. Mhm. I think my gut reaction was just kind of, "Hey, wait a minute." And now that you put all of the pieces into place, it does make perfect sense. So I feel I feel comfortable with this now. See, I love doing this show. This is great, guys.
1: <laughs> Glad to be of service.
0: <laughs> all right. So uh, is there anything else before we we jump into spoiler territory on this one? I'm good. I'm hearing, I think I'm good. Uh, okay. I'm like I'm like I'm hearing crickets. So so <laughs> I think it's time. I think it's time. Um, but before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that we love it if you would take part in the conversation as well. There's a few ways you can do it. Uh, please visit us at b5audioguide.com, where we have conversation forums set up both for spoiler-phobes and for people who want to dive into all of the spoilers everywhere. Um, some great comments going on in both of those. Uh, I love reading what everybody thinks. Um, and then also, if you are more of a concise sort of a person, Twitter, Tumblr, we are at b5audioguide so feel free to to look us up there Um, and of course we've got homework homework for next time the next episode will be all alone in the night so be sure to check that out before you join us again and with that we are going to jump into spoiler territory okay so Babylon 5's got some fancy new weapons from Earth I wonder who they're going to use those against
2: yeah, funny Never that. Never hand someone be... a gun if you don't know where they're going to point it. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Shannon, you're with all the quips this time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just all kind of lining up at it, it, like you know, like Erica just said, what's going to wind up happening? Well, Babylon Five is going to be able, state of the art, to defend itself against Earth Force ships when the time comes. Yep as yeah. well as other as shadows and other things so mm-hmm.
0: yeah <laughs> that was the one thing that just jumped out at me boom um as far as, as spoiler stuff then there were a couple of spoiler territory stuff there were a couple of other things but that was like that was the big one like this this episode is showing that earth is is jumping into the confrontations sort of on the with a very martial train of thought and they are going to continue to be you know making themselves bigger and bigger like a cat that's trying to that's kind trying to look tough and and yeah Babylon 5 is just going to turn their tools right around at them
1: yeah they expect Sheridan, uh, based on President Clark's approval and based on his background, they expect Sheridan to be supportive of Clark and supportive of Earth Force and to be an Earth-first kind of uh, guy. So why not arm Babylon 5? Why not prepare Babylon 5 to take the role that Clark expects and wants Babylon 5 to take, which is not a United Nations in space, but an instrument of projecting Earth power. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not going to turn out that way. Um, but but that's that's where this is going. That's where that's totally where this is going
0: definitely um, I feel like that was the, the biggie for me as far as spoilery stuff goes the other two things that pinged out for for me were just dialogue based which is kind of the the things that I tend to notice so I, I noticed the line where General Franklin says to Captain Sheridan the minbari aren't your own flesh and blood kind of defending why he you know he feels comfortable killing aliens and and when he says they're not your own flesh and blood I'm thinking well not yet you haven't had you haven't had your son yet <laughs> right um, and then and and, and also also, also the,
1: before you go there uh and also keep in mind uh Minbari soul mi- migration. Uh they totally are our own flesh and blood. Um yeah. but only but only Sheridan and uh only Sheridan, Ivanova and, and President Clark really know that at this point. <laughs> That's and, right. and, and that, that, Clark that doesn't we...
0: buy it. <laughs> <laughs> that one didn't even clue in for me. Excellent. And the other little thing was just uh when Keffer is, is is uh with his, his coh- cohorts and uh, and PFC Large is making the toast. Here's to you buffer, here's to all of us. I'm thinking, yeah, nice toast, buddy, but uh yeah, you're all gonna die. Even keffer Like every single one of you. Yep, going even Kefir. down.
2: Everybody all of you are gonna be yeah, dead before the season's over. Um something I uh noticed um very briefly uh, was we have yet another Markab mentioned. It's like just all of a sudden we're getting these steady drips uh, preparing us for confessions and lamentations and um, uh, Franklin sharing the Markab fruit juice with his dad, who is kind of suspicious. He'd rather have orange juice, but, you know, tries it and likes it. Um, so that leaped out at me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's make sure that we recognize that we have this race on the station that is going to be leaving us uh, in dramatic fashion uh, towards the e- end of the season. Uh, one thing that I wanted to express a little frustration with is that once again, yet again, we have a powerful character with a personal connection to our regular cast who could Presumably, play an important role in the future of the story arc, and we never see him again that's true. Yeah. I I uh, was
0: almost, at the end of this episode, I was almost wishing that they had killed off Dr. Franklin's father because I know that he doesn't come back. And I can understand not being able to get Paul Winfield again or maybe not wanting him if he didn't do so great on set. But still, I'm not sure there's any mention. Yeah.
2: There is not
1: another mention. I went to uh, the Wikia page uh, to uh, check Mm -hmm. it out. And uh, JMS made a couple of mentions online. That uh, General Franklin would have been a President Clark loyalist, and that he had briefly thought about uh, bringing um, him back into the show during the uh, Earth Civil War, and nothing really came of it, and so he just vanishes. But you know, the I, I would have thought, you know, the the first the first thought I had after watching this episode was, okay, we never see him again. What side of the war would he have been on? That would have been an amazing. Piece of backstory, and the and the number two thought was I forget what the number two thought was. Anyway, that was a big the, that number one thought that was big enough to serve as a thought.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I th- I can I can kind of understand JMS feeling like he had an awful lot of plates spinning, so wanting to to drop one thing out to to not overcomplicate the story. It's, it's an understandable thing to do. However, in in the cases where it is somebody that is so closely tied to one of our main players, one of our main characters, it, it just seems like it's it's a dangling thread that doesn't need to be there. It, it, it at least give them a mention in in some side dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you were just pointing out, Shannon, we've got Markab fruit juice. You know, we can we mm-hmm. can do these subtle things in Babylon Connolly, Five. That happens well, again and again. Yeah, they know.
2: didn't have to bring in Connolly again from from by any means necessary, but they took the trouble to do that. Earth, uh,
1: Babylon Five secedes from the earth alliance and dr franklin never once mentions what side his dad is on or how he feels about uh how things are going and that's just uh, yeah yeah you 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 work in the markab you work in Connolly, you don't work that in and the answer to that is pretty obvious they were rushing the plot in season four Mm -hmm. because they weren't sure that they were going Mm -hmm. to get a season five and that was one of those extraneous things that had to go away, probably, if they were ever going to go there in the first place.
0: Yep. Oh well. Any anything else, uh, continuity wise, or are we ready to to jump off towards the rim and uh, and then come back next time for all alone in the night?
1: Uh, I've got nothing else uh, other than to reiterate yet again that uh, I we are given some signposts here with Delin's character in the the vulnerability that she has in this episode, and I think that is a decent sign point to the arc that she's going to have to take before she comes mm-hmm. back around to that wonderful scene in Severed Dreams. Which is the yeah. next? And which before is the then next... comes
2: the Inquisitor. Yeah, right. They're, they're, I mean, she's gonna. Yeah, and it's kind of nice to have that happen. We're, we're used to characters sort of starting at a, a bottom and working their way up, like, like you could Londo. say, like Lando and Jakar. You know, they sort of started at a low point, and their characters are heading into a bigger direction. Delenn was kind of at a at a at a zenith. And now she's come down, and we're going to get to see her come back up, and th- that's nice variety.
0: Absolutely, Chip. Did you have something else to add there?
1: Nope, I'm good. All right.
0: <laughs> well, in that case, I think uh, I'll once again encourage folks to to come and visit us. You folks that are listening now, please come to the uh, the spoilerific forums and let us know what you think what you think of this and the coming episodes. And um, with that, I think we'll just head to the rim. So uh, this is hey a- hey a- hey, a- hey hey, we're coming well, back, aren't we? We're coming. No, don't 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 take me to the rim. We've got we've got okay. a,
1: a, a, three seasons and a half
0: left, don't we? Poor poor choice of <laughs> words. Poor choice of words. Yeah. <sighs> you scared okay. me. Let me try that again. Let's head off to, um, Io. How's that sound? People come back from <laughs> Io all the time. Sure, sure. I can. I, okay. I, I'll allow it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so this this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon and Durham. (laughs) Let's let's (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, that was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Kitty. Shall we try that again? (laughs) (laughs) So we're having a special guest this time and no nobody told me? Wow. Sorry, I would have put him in the notes.
1: Okay, this one's (laughs) this one's going in the outro.